are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Looking at Game 3 with the great ESPN's Kevin Pelton today on Locked On NBA, I'm David Locke. This is your daily bite-sized podcast for you. On the out there in the Locked On Podcast Network, it's Locked On NBA. Anthony and Adam will be with you on Friday, and then Josh Lloyd back with the biggest stories from the local experts on Monday. So, Kevin, the Raptors take the 2 1 series lead before I tarnish this conversation with all my thoughts. What jumps out to you from the 123 109 win? Uh, well, no one will, will ever say the Warriors don't need both Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant. That will never be a storyline. It does not appear. I mean, I, I was surprised that, you know, even after the news came out that Thompson was going to be out tonight, the Warriors were still favored uh, by three the last time I checked at uh, the, the Caesars Sportsbook right before this game. I mean, without those two guys, they're even though they have a lot of great talent, they're really thin. Yeah, at the same time, I was surprised how much I felt like they – Somehow, while being down nine or ten, I felt like they were dictating the game. Like their energy level was incredible. Um, I, I, I kept they were so limited, but I kept feeling like their particularly late second quarter defense was was overwhelming. Um, I thought they played really well in the third, and then kind of ran out of a little bit of gas late in the third. Got frustrated, maybe just that it was asking too much. I don't. So in some weird way, I feel as though this game should have been one-sided, was really, I guess, one-sided in the sense that the Raptors never, I think, led by anything less than seven for most of the the game. And yet, at the same time, I felt as though it really showed kind of all of the things that make the Warriors the Warriors. I mean, well, Steph Curry, I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to, right? When we talk about them controlling the game, it was, it was largely about everything he was doing offensively. And what an incredible game for him. It's kind of bizarre that... You know, maybe his, I think surely his most memorable finals performance ever comes in a game the Warriors lost. But, you know, he was he was a one-man offense for stretches tonight, despite, the, I mean, the, that first quarter run in particular, when they've got Sean Livingston out there, uh, Draymond Green, you know, DeMarcus Cousins, I, I guess Andre Iguodala is the second-best three-point shooter on the court, and yet he's still somehow finding his way, uh, getting free and, you know, scoring, what, 17 points in the first quarter? Possibly also a testament to the fact that Fred Van Vliet uh, has become so much better a defender against him than Kyle Lowry is. But, I mean, that was just an incredible run by Steph. What's going on that both the offenses are executing at such a high level against pretty good defensive teams? I mean, the Warriors were, I think the Raptors were about a 127 today. The Warriors were a little under their their average at 112. But what what's going on that the rap the, these teams are having such good offensive games? I mean, to me, I think that the Warriors' struggles defensively they're hard to disentangle from the injuries that they've had. I mean, you know, number one, they they started Livingston presumably because they didn't want the defensive downgrade to Quinn Cook from Clay Thompson, and you know, we're concerned about that. It, it was obvious that you know, offensively, Cook was always going to be the other better fit for that role, but decided to bring him off the bench and I think kind of a, a disastrous decision because they just couldn't score with Livingston. Um, but then the other aspect of it is the other injury that we haven't mentioned yet is Kevon Looney being out for this game forces DeMarcus Cousins into this huge role as the Warriors starting center. And, you know, he's a, he's a very high variance player, particularly coming back from an injury as he is. And, you know, game two, they don't win that game probably without his offensive contributions down the stretch. In this one, 
you know, he he just got roasted by the Raptors. This is the first time I think they, you know, they, they targeted him at the start of game two and got a couple quick fouls on him, but didn't necessarily go back to that. This game, it was more repeated putting Cousins in the pick and roll and taking advantage of his weaknesses there. This didn't surprise me. I, I think when you go back and look at game two, Steve Kerr did some interesting things. And one was that he started DeMarcus Cousins, and I don't think Toronto was ready for it. And you're right, they went after it a few times. But that it wasn't what they anticipated. In the third quarter where Nick Nurse was going to come out of halftime, having analyzed the situation, knowing Cousins was going to start, they suddenly flipped Draymond Green onto Kyle Lowry, changed all the defensive matchups in a unique fashion, and I think it disturbed the Warriors enough that they didn't get, couldn't take care of or take advantage of DeMarcus. And here we had suddenly a bunch of days off knowing DeMarcus was going to have to play and the Raptors being able to be prepared for it, which I don't think they were in game two. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there was definitely the element of surprise to that decision. It wasn't something that, you know, I would have looked at as a likely adjustment based, based on the fact that Cousins had struggled in game one. It didn't seem like the responses to give him more minutes. I, I think the other element is, you know, uh, you mentioned putting Draymond Green on Kyle Lowry. Well, that's no longer an option when you've got to play, you know, smaller guards out there. Uh, you don't have your shooting guard, Clay Thompson, defending Kawhi Leonard, which gave them a lot of favorable matchups in that third quarter. Uh, gave them both Andre Iguodala and, and Draymond Green as help defenders and just, you know, allowed a lot of a lot of flexibility. They didn't have quite as much of that when you're down Clay Thompson. Here's the thing that has me really befuddled in this series right now. Game one, Toronto's half-court offense is amazing. It's at 109.4, according to Cleaning the Glasses, in the 87th percentile. Game two, Toronto's half-court offense is terrible, 77.2, 7th percentile. Game three, today, as of right now, it's 118.198th percentile. How do they swing so dramatically in what they're doing in the half-court? I mean, I think it's mostly shot making, isn't it? Uh, you know, Kirk Goldsworthy wrote about it using the uh, second spectrum data that we have access to at ESPN. That you know, game one they dramatically outperformed their expected shot quality in terms of their shot making, and you know that's why they their overall shooting was so strong. Game two, uh, they massively underperformed their shot quality. Uh, game three, I haven't looked at the numbers yet. I'm not sure they're even up yet, but I I would anticipate that this is going to be one of their better shooting performances. Uh, in terms of shot making, you know, when you account for the quality of the shots they're getting, I, I, I mean, they got better shots. Certainly, there was a lot of open three-point looks, you know, particularly from the corner. Uh, I think Nate Duncan pointed out that you know through the third quarter they had something like twelve corner three-point attempts, which you know is more than teams usually average in a game, particularly in a you know a defensive-minded setting like the finals against quality defense like the Warriors. So that's part of it, but. Also, I mean, when Fred Van Vliet's knocking down that, that his second crazy three to kind of finish the game of this series, uh, some of the shots that Danny Green was making when he, after he knocked down open looks where he made much more contested attempts, you know, that's, it's, I mean, it's a cliche, but as we've talked about before on this podcast, it's very accurate that it's a make or miss league. So during the regular season, nobody will double team anyone. No one will do any of those kind of things because... You can't leave the other guys wide open. There's too many easy looks that way for whatever the reason is. And yet we get in the playoffs, we're seeing doubles on Steph, doubles on Kawhi. They're neither slowing down Steph or slowing down Kawhi. Are these the right moves? And is there some weird psychological thing going on here where teams just aren't quite willing to, they just feel like they can't get, they got to look like they're doing something. 
I don't think it's that. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, stars are going to be more aggressive in this setting than they are during the regular season where, you know, you're, I mean, if if the Warriors face this exact same situation where they're down Clay and Kevin Durant during the regular season, the response isn't going to be to run Steph Curry out there for, you know, I don't know how many minutes he ended up playing because he came out at the end, but, you know, no rest at the start of the fourth quarter. It's not going to be him taking on every single offensive possession. It's probably going to be more of an, okay, we can let this one go because it's one out of 82. Uh, so I think that's an element of it. I think the other element of it is, I think the psychological thing is more what it says to shooters when you leave them open. And even people who, you know, are nominally okay or good shooters. I mean, you look at Eric Bledsoe in that Milwaukee Toronto series in the conference finals, you know, he's, he's an okay three point shooter. Didn't have good catch and shoot numbers this year. Shot it, I think better off the dribble than he did off the catch. But uh, you know, he's not someone you would look at in the regular season and say, Hey, we're going to double Giannis and, leave him open repeatedly because you know a that's a complex strategy to try to execute one out of 82 and b you know the there's not the same psychological element of game after game you're just kind of leaving him open and hey why are they leaving me open and you know you know what what happens if i miss another one that that sort of thing i think kind of adds up so i think that's probably more of it he's espn's kevin pelton the insider Numbers, breakdown, great analysis, bunch of fun pieces. He also has something called PeltonCast, in which he's done a really neat piece recently uh, on the podcast world. We'll promote that in a second. Tell you more about it as we continue. It is Locked on NBA with Kevin Pelton. Remember, Grip6 has got a great Father's Day gift for you. Go to Grip6.com slash lock. That's Grip6.com slash lock to get the latest great Father's Day gifts available for you uh, with the Grip6 No Flap, No Holes belt. Kevin Pelton is with us. Uh, tell everybody about the little project you did on PeltonCast recently, and then we'll get back to the, the matchup of the NBA Finals. But this really cool uh, project you just finished on PeltonCast, your own personal podcast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's the uh, 40th anniversary of the Sonics winning their only championship in 1979 and uh, was able to talk to the four players and, and Coach Lenny Wilkins, the three players and Coach Lenny Wilkins who still live in the Seattle area, get extended sit-down interviews with all of them and uh, also did did shorter interviews with a handful of other players, including Gus Williams, who came back in town for a celebration at the Mariners game last weekend and uh, put together a, a two-part oral history of sorts of, you know, that, that championship team in that era, which also included a loss in the NBA finals in game seven, the previous year in the, in the same matchup against the bullets and then how that team sort of fell apart more quickly than expected. And, uh, it was really great to, to do that. And also had some fun audio. I, my mom, a couple of years ago at a thrift shop, picked up a commemorative album that had come out in 1979 of that team and was able to use that to get the calls from the great Bob Blackburn, the legendary Sonics announcer as well. Well, that's great stuff. That's at Pelton Cast. Go grab it. Anything jump out from you of how different or similar the league is 40 years difference? I mean, I think, you know, we often are conditioned to talk about the differences. And, uh, you know, there certainly are some that was, Kind of a fascinating team, how it came together. Lenny Wilkins, uh, eventually the coach, was hired as director of player personnel 
in the summer of 77 before taking over the coaching duties and you know made three trades, signed Gus Williams, basically remade the entire drafted Jack Sigma, basically remade the entire off uh, roster in an off season in a way that I, I think would probably be more challenging to do on the fly uh, at this point. But you know, I, one of the fascinating things is you know the the money issues and everything that broke the team apart. As much as we talk about the drama of the NBA now, uh, I think oftentimes there was as much of it back in the you know the earlier days of the league. It just wasn't covered as intensely on a day to day basis. Interesting. Kevin Pelton with us from ESPN. That podcast is Pelton Cast. Uh, you wrote before Game Three what it would look like if Clay Thompson was unable to play. We saw it. Uh, you know it's. The Raptors are the deeper, better team. I don't think anyone's surprised by this 123-109 win. Where does this series stand in your mind? What, what, are, what are we on the verge of here? I mean, it's still tough to say because we don't know what the Warriors' health situation is going to look like. I mean, it, it seems more likely based on Steve Kerr's comments and everything we just kind of know about the injury that Clay Thompson will play in Game 4 that, you know, he, he clearly wanted to play, as reported by uh, Woj, and you know the the team was the one kind of making the more conservative decision, not wanting them to re-aggravate it and it to remain an issue throughout the series. Uh, but you know now that you're down two one and it's not quite a must win, but it's awful close. Uh, I, I think it's more likely we see Clay, and then also very possible we see Kevin Durant, and then this matchup flips entirely because you know I think one of the things we talked about. Kavon Looney's injury and the pressure it thrusts on DeMarcus Cousins, well, if you have both Durant and Clay Thompson, even if they're somewhat limited, now all of a sudden the death lineup becomes an option again. You can go back to Draymond Green as an option at center and and uh, you know not need to get those minutes from either Cousins or another traditional big, whether it's Andrew Bogut or, or Jordan Bell. Uh, both of whom got minutes in this game. And, you know, we haven't seen how that matchup looks against Toronto, how they'll respond to Draymond Green at center. I, I would say at this point, I think, you know, the fact that the Warriors, the, there's still the risk of recurrence. We don't know how, how close to 100% those guys are going to be. I think Toronto is the favorites at this point in the series. Needing to win two of the next four with having two of those at home. Yeah. Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, I, it's, it is a very hard series to evaluate. I, I always, we always second guess. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk about something I was wrong on. I, I'm curious why it's working. So I just didn't I, – I, when you analyze the series and you understand that the Raptors have a problem, that they don't have anybody who can take, care, take advantage of Steph Curry's defense because Danny Green's on the floor. But at the same time, Danny Green brings so much to my mind defensively and is, plays longer and covers more space and – you know, in theory, make shots as he did tonight and had on other nights that I didn't really love the idea. I just didn't think Fred Van Vliet was good enough to take Danny Green off the floor, if I was being honest about it. And, I, and I'd said that in our local stuff around here. Why is that working? Because it's not something that makes a lot of sense to me. I I would understand kind of benching Danny Green if I had somebody who I thought was way better. I just I, I I'm missing. I'm surprised at how good Fred Van Vliet's being in the postseason. I had a similar thought coming into this series. I thought that, you know, one of the reasons being, well, specifically the idea of playing Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry together, because that's, you know, guys listed at six foot and six foot one. That's an extremely undersized backcourt to play a lot of minutes this deep into the playoffs. And I thought they were able to do that against Milwaukee because, you know, Milwaukee generally plays multiple guards. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, really po- post threats or great offensive players and, and, 
Bledsoe and, and Malcolm Brogdon, who, you know, is a capable player, but not really a, a one-on-one guy. Uh, I think one factor that's helped is, you know, the Warriors aren't, you know, they're not capable of exploiting mismatches or targeting defenders in quite the same way without Kevin Durant. He's their guy against switches. You know, uh, Steph has become a, a very capable one-on-one player in his own right against bigs. But if you're talking about, you know, switching game lead onto a, a bigger player and trying to force him to defend that guy one-on-one, it's not really clear who that player is on the Warriors roster. And they also maybe don't have the spacing to do it. But then the other aspect of it is is just that Van Fleet is. I mean, he's he's defended his uh, backside off. He's been incredible against Steph Curry. It's the ball denial. The Warriors had a little more counter to it tonight with, uh, you know, bringing him uh, Steph getting some backdoor cuts at times, bringing him off more screens and trying to get off, get uh, Van Fleet off him that way. But you know, still the the difference between when Van Fleet was on Curry and and Lowry, he's a very good defender himself, uh, was massive. Interesting. So, you mentioned the six one six feet. We got a guy like Carson Edwards coming into this draft out of Purdue, who I mean is just this bona fide scorer, six one, really strong, two hundred pounds. And I watch him, and I just keep thinking he's too small. He's just so small. Is that still? An, it feels like on one level. Every point guard in this league has to be six four and long. And on the other level, I'm watching right now, and there's two six feet tall point guards on the floor. I don't think you, that everyone has to be six four. I think if you are going to do it, you got to be incredibly strong and defensive minded. I would say if if I'm going to compare Edwards to anyone it's in, in, in do so optimistically, it's probably more of a little bit smaller Patty Mills where he is going to be uh, an issue defensively. You know, he, that's not the strength of his game, but he's going to give you enough offensive production to make up for it, as opposed to guys like Van Vliet and Lowry, who are so strong. Lowry, particularly the low center of gravity, uh, and, and you know, his ability to be to play against much bigger opponents, even in the post. The Raptors kind of like it when teams try to post him up with bigger players because Kyle's so good at handling that. Let me ask you another draft question, just kind of on the systematic type things. There's a bunch of these guys in this draft that are these six six, like two thirty guys, right? So Admiral Schofield's one of them. But I, I mean, I think you, you there's there's three or four of these guys that are these kind of crazy, weird Byron Houston, Clarence Weatherspoon type players who used to be absolutely for a period of time they can't play. Are we? I was talking to an NBA guy this week about whether or not we're getting so positionless that 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 the fact that these guys are actually positionless is a good thing for them, and the way we're switching everything, their size means that they switch from one position to another, and it doesn't matter. What's your What's your take on this? I, I agree with that. I mean, you look at Draymond Green, who's someone who came into the league, and everybody is like well, which position is he going to be able to defend? And it turns out a, a bunch of them, partially because of the fact that he got in better shape and improved his body, but you know, also because of the fact that he wasn't a tweener. He wasn't undersized for a four and you know, maybe not a good enough shooter to play three. He, it turns out that he had all of those skills. Uh, so I, I think he's you know, not that you expect these guys to be Draymond Green. Uh, they, 
I think Schofield like physically reminds me a little bit of uh, Shemi Ojale of the Celtics, who's okay. been a really good defensive player, not maybe enough of an offensive threat to stay on the court for big minutes, but kind of in that vein. And I guess uh, is Taylor Horton Tucker probably one of those unusual uh, physiques you're you're referring to as well? Yeah, and I think uh, Pash. Uh, Pascal, I don't know how to pronounce it, out of Villanova. Oh, yeah, Eric Pascal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's he, 6'7", 254? We used to just decide that didn't work anymore. I mean, the other thing I think that's changed is, we, like I just said about those undersized guards, as switching has become more important, strength has become relatively more important. Uh, you know, and, and the ability to hold your own against uh, a bigger opponent, and then you're going to get help. You know, you're not going to there's not a lot of guys in the league that are just going to be able to shoot over a player like that. You know, it's, it's the, the Kevin Durant and not a whole lot else. So yeah, I, I do think it's, it's good news for those guys. He's Kevin Pelton. That podcast we mentioned, in case you've forgotten, was Pelton Cast. You can go grab that. It's a lot of fun. He did the anniversary of the Sonics. If you're looking uh, for fun things to do and get out and places to stay, go to Hotels.com. Then it's a lot better than hate liking your friends' trips. Make your own at Hotels.com. A few big picture questions as we wrap up with you, but uh, what have we learned about Steph Curry in this playoff run without Kevin Durant? <laughs> I think we've learned that this idea that he struggled in the playoffs that seemed to be cropping up uh, at times the first two rounds in the playoffs is pretty laughably misguided. And, you know, you looked at the bigger sample, he's always been good in the playoffs. You know, he's maybe not been as consistent night to night as someone like Kevin Durant, who, you know, has, is able to supplement with more free throws. That actually, I would say, is something else we've learned about Steph. His, his ability to draw fouls, the kind of bogus fouls that annoy us, has really improved dramatically. And it's been on full display, I think, in this series where the Warriors have kind of needed those to to survive offensively a little bit more. Uh, so I would say those are the main things. And, yeah, I think it's just a reminder of how good this guy can be when he's the, the go-to player. Uh, yeah, you know, I remember a comment uh, by Bill Simmons a few weeks ago talking about Durant and his greatness. The idea being, well, he's someone who can be the lead scorer on a team, obviously, and then also can play as kind of a secondary guy if you've got the other great talent that he's playing with the Warriors. And he was like, listing off the other players who could do that. It didn't include Steph, who to me is the ultimate example in terms of his willingness to kind of step into a smaller role to, to fit Durant in when the Warriors signed him. Yeah, I really think... Steph is still, I don't know if it's possible to have been an MVP and a unanimous MVP and still be underrated, but I kind of feel like he is. Well, I think so. I mean, you know, it's maybe just the nature of the the way we consume basketball and just about anything else in 2019 where there's always got to be, you know, two camps. There's got to be, you know, the, the, the Steph better camp and then the camp that's you know, trolling him over uh, his perceived weaknesses, but you know the the that the latter camp is uh, still entirely too large to to be fair to Steph. Free agency's looming over this. To some extent, this is an obvious question, but what players move the really move the meter? Who are the players if they switch teams? Are good, and in maybe in even what order would you put them that move the meter the most in this free agency? Uh, so I would say probably Kawhi, number one, because of the fact that he would have the biggest impact both on his new team and on his old team. 
Whereas Durant at number two, you know, he's, he's obviously going to make a, an enormous difference for his new team, but the Warriors are still going to be contenders even if Durant leaves. I mean, I think, you know, the extent to which Kyrie is in this category is one of the interesting questions that we're probably going to have a better handle on next season uh, after, you know, kind of his, uh, his up and down season off the court and in terms of leadership, let's say, generously. Um, I, I think we probably have to put Clay Thompson in, pretty high up in this group, uh, given, you know, again, his role and his importance to the Warriors. What What is your feeling if, this if Clay went somewhere and decided I don't think he will, but if Clay decided he wanted to go be a number one option, what what would be what would would you buy it? Can he do it, or is he totally dependent on these dribbleless nights? I don't think he's totally dependent. I go back to the 2016 playoffs when Steph was out, and you know he he was probably at that point the Warriors' number one option offensively. Although they also had had Draymond Green, and you know I think I was pleasantly surprised at that point his ability to create his own shot. And uh, you know the the interesting thing if you look at you know I looked at the, before the series wrote about the Warriors with and without Durant, and looked at the other three you know main guys how they performed with and without Durant, and Clay was the one who sort of saw the least to drop off in terms of efficiency when Durant was off the court, which you know suggests it's kind of funny as much as we think of him as a complimentary player, he may not be benefiting as much from having Durant and getting better shot attempts. He's just kind of Clay no matter what else happens. I always love about Clay when they signed Durant and everyone's worrying about this, he's like, I'm getting mine. Like, I'll be fine. I'm going to get my shots. And, like, you looked, and for the longest time that year, he got exactly the amount of shots he'd had the year before. There was no – it was like, you you guys can all be worrying about whatever you want, but I'm getting mine. And it, it – I don't know. There's something I've always admired about that. I think the I think he went from, like, 17.6 in the second half of the year he dropped, actually. By the time, I think it went down to 16.2. But for the longest time that year, it was, like, right on the same number. Yeah, it was much more Curry who had to adjust his game to accommodate Durant than, than Clay. Right. I mean, Clay this year, I believe, took more shots than he did in the per game. I'll have to look it up, but my memory is that Clay took more shots per game this year than he did in the year prior to Durant joining the team. Although you, some of that probably is attributable to the increase in pace around the way. Oh, you always have to have that other little nugget in there. All right. Well, so obviously, Durant changes the landscape. Kawhi changes the landscape. You're giving Clay a landscape changer. Kyrie, you're wondering about. Does D'Angelo Russell give team wins if he leaves Brooklyn? I mean, depends how they replace him, because now the, the hot and heavy rumor is Kyrie to Brooklyn, which would be an interesting experiment. Uh, I don't know that he transforms the team that he goes to in the short term, but he's also you know the youngest of these players. Uh, is someone with just four years of experience, and you know, two, three years down the road, I think that might be more, more of the uh, the landscape change than than right now next season. What is your take on D'Angelo Russell? He has flummoxed me all season long because on <laughs> one level, exactly what you're talking about, it was untapped. If you still kind of went out of him in the draft, he was such an incredible passer. And yet he goes to the rim at what? One of the lowest rates of anybody in the league with his usage. His mid-range usage is incredibly high and his free-throw usage is incredibly low. That is not a script for an efficient player. I've always been a D'Angelo Russell fan, dating back to his days at Ohio State. And, you know, I think 
so I have this strong memory of a conversation I had with an NBA scout during the all-star game. And, uh, when the last time it was in new Orleans and we were talking about D'Angelo Russell and kind of how he would make it, you know, my faith was maybe wavering a little bit at that point. And, you know, this person pointed out that if he's going to be a really effective NBA point guard, he's got to be able to make the three off the dribble because that's how he draws two defenders to him. Uh, and opens things up for his teammates. And then also, you know, making those extra threes is how he compensates in terms of efficiency because of the fact that he's not getting the rim and the free throw line all that much. And that's pretty much, I think, what we saw this season. Uh, it's an open question whether he can continue to shoot threes off the dribble at quite that same rate. But, you know, we know that that's a skill that continues to improve over the course of players' career. He's at a position point guard where players typically don't peak until, you know, their late twenties, which he's still got a few years to get there. Uh, so I think that, and I think his decision-making will continue to improve with that. So you add that all up. And I think, you know, I, I, it's funny because he's already been an all-star, but I think he's got the potential to, you know, get substantially better and play more sustainably at a level like this or, or somewhat higher. What is the amount of off-the-bounce threes that you need? Like, Nylon Calculus did that interesting research a few years ago that 750 threes is the amount that someone takes where you actually, if you kind of can guess, it'll repeat the same number. So when you talk about that in off-the-bounce threes, last year Russell took, uh, I just pulled it up, he took 361, and he hit 34.9% on those. The year prior, he took 120 and he took hit 29%. Like, when do you believe the sample size is large enough that what we're seeing actually counts? So I would say I don't like framing the question that way. The way I'd prefer to frame it is, you know, how much do we learn about his ability? So I don't, and that's kind of every shot you take adds a little bit of information to your overall ability. And, you know, maybe at some point the the ones uh, a certain distance back in the past, they kind of fall off that calculation. We should start ignoring them. So if I'm, if you're telling me, asking me to project what he's going to shoot next season on threes, it's not 35% or on, on off the dribble threes. It's not 35% because I think there probably will be some regression of the mean, but it's maybe like 33%. He's Kevin Pelton. He never really wants to answer the questions I ask him because he can give us all that stuff right there instead, which is way better. And at least I don't really understand it well enough to fight him on it. So I have to let him go. Okay. Or I understand. <laughs> all right. You are free from this burden. Pelton cast another edition coming up here soon. Are you doing anything crazy and fun on your whole? Are you greatest Pagliacci t-shirts? Like what is the next one? <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing our search for Seattle's best sandwich right now. So oh. that's, uh, it's, it's a Macrina bakery bun on the one we're reviewing this week. So I know that one will be, that will be appreciated that as well. Be. Do I have to go get you that great Pagliacci shirt? Now, is that actually truly the burden I have upon, um, having you on this podcast right after the game tonight? Is that the, is, do I have to go to work to get you that shirt? It would be appreciated, that's for sure. All right. I'll see if I can find connections. They did quite a nice job. All right. That is – have you done Best Pizza and did Pagliacci's win? We have not done Best Pizza. Uh, we'll see how that plays out in the future. Yeah, I don't think you should do that show because if Pagliacci doesn't win, I don't know if you'd ever be allowed back <laughs> on our show. 
<laughs> yes, I think the discussion think, may be the better part I of the dollar there. Right, I think the I think the risk is it's way too large here for you to do that show. All right, uh, awesome. I will talk to you soon. He is Kevin Pelton. Go read him on ESPN and uh, go grab uh, if you want a little fun retro on the world forty years ago in the NBA and how stunningly similar uh, it was. Uh, in a lot of ways to what it is today, grab PeltonCast. This has been Locked On NBA. Anthony and Adam will be back with you tomorrow. And make sure you grab your favorite NBA team's daily podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network.